Our sermon series through the book of Ephesians is called Grace and Peace. If you remember from the very first week, we've seen this thread of grace and peace uh, in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to pretty much touch on them every single time, every passage through Ephesians, grace and peace. And in the first week uh, that we worked through Ephesians 1, we explored how grace is by definition, it's hard to explain. It's hard to define. Right? It's unmerited favor. It's an undeserved gift. Peace is a lot like grace, I find, like that. It's actually, it's hard to define. Right? If you had to describe peace, think about it. What, what would you say? Is peace simply the absence of conflict? Or is there more to peace? Specifically, when we look at peace in the Bible, is it more than just the absence of conflict, or is there more to it? Well, these two words, grace and peace, characterize the whole book of Ephesians, and really the whole Bible. And so you may be here this morning, uh, coming from many different places. You may be here and be right with me. Yeah, grace and peace, sounds great. I could define them, I could teach them, I, I got it. Others of you may be thinking, okay, maybe, I know these words, they're familiar to me, but I don't really know what they would look like. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Maybe you have no interest in Christianity whatsoever. But you hear these words, grace and peace, and you know that they sound good, even if they're hard to define. You know that they're, they're something we should be after. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning and you know peace with God but you struggle to connect the dots. Well, what does that mean for my life? How would that change the way I live? Right, maybe the theory is there, but maybe you still struggle with living out, giving grace and applying peace. You live with bitterness, resentment, cynicism, a lack of forgiveness. But what I want to encourage you with is that what feels impossible and what is impossible for man is possible for God. And so this section of scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, the second half, verses 11 through 22, is what we'll be going through this morning. In this section of scripture, it calls us to remember our hopeless state, apart from Christ. But holds out an ideal of peace with God and peace with one another. And it tells us that this supernatural peace is more than a pipe dream. And so our big idea this morning is this, our big idea through Christ, we have peace with God and peace with one another. Through Christ, we have peace with God and peace with one another. You may be here and you say, that's obvious. I know that. That's... But what does that really mean? Let's explore that this morning. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. This is God's word. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for the Lord, uh, for God by the Spirit. This is God's word. We see that we launch in on verse 11 with therefore, and we can rely on the old adage. If you see a therefore in the Bible, you say, what is it? Therefore. Very good. If you haven't heard that before, it's a good one. There's a therefore in the Bible. What is it there for? Well, two weeks ago, we went through the first 10 verses of chapter 2 and got 10 verses of sheer gospel goodness. We saw a massive contrast. The first few verses, we are dead, dead in our sin. But we see this flip. We are made alive together with Christ by divine mercy, divine intervention. And we get this beautiful picture of vertical peace, vertical peace. Right, we're good with the planes, vertical, horizontal. Vertical peace, peace between us and God. And so that's our first point this morning as we work through the second half of Ephesians 2, is peace with God. Peace with God. Amen. Yes. We should all be this excited. Uh, peace with God. Vertical peace. This is good news. A chasm has been bridged. This afternoon, I would encourage you to reread Ephesians 1 and 2, all that we've gone through through the letter so far. And understand that we can have peace with God. Paul says, therefore, so he talks about this vertical peace, and he says, therefore, remember. So we're only two words in, but we're already learning stuff. Paul is addressing his audience, and he's saying to them, remember. Remember something. Who is Paul's audience? Well, it's the saints in Ephesus. So Christians in Asia Minor. <clears throat> now, who are the saints in Ephesus? Now, the majority of them are Gentiles. Gentiles are not Jewish. Anyone that is not a Jew is a Gentile. So he says, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. The oath sign of the old covenant was circumcision, marking off God's people. And so to call Gentiles the uncircumcision was a derogatory way of reminding them that they are not God's chosen people. This is a serious division. In our lives, we like rivalries. We like divisions. You know what I'm talking about? You know, it's like you, some are, some are tense, but they're kind of petty. So you say, oh, you're from Cambridge. No, I'm from Hespler. Right, there's tension there. 
We like to divide over things. Uh, maybe more silly things is like the Coke versus Pepsi people, right? That's a thought. How about this? Uh, Leafs fans versus uh, teams that like to win, you know? There's, there's divisions in the world, and we like to create these rivalries. When we're looking at the Jew-Gentile divide here, this is not what we're talking about. This is deep. This is heavy. This is deep-seated. It's toxic. This was cultural. It was religious. And it was racist. There was hate involved in this division. To the Gentiles, the Jews were elitist. They were legalistic. And to the Jews, the Gentiles were simply less than. They were not God's chosen people. Therefore, they were less than. But we see amazingly, when the new covenant was inaugurated in Christ's death and resurrection, things changed. The good news was peace with God, not determined by race or nationality. And this is good news for us. I don't know where you place yourself in passages like this. But we need to remember that, I mean, there may be some people with Jewish heritage here, but a lot of us are Gentiles by birth. And so we need to remember, this is good news for us. We were the ones on the outside. We need to remember what Paul tells them to remember. Verse 12, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Separated from Christ, without hope, without God, this is bad news. But I love, just like in the first half of chapter 2, it was bad news, bad news, bad news. Just kept getting worse, worse, worse. And then there was a but God. And things flipped. It's the same in the second half. We see, okay, bad news. Things are looking pretty bleak. And then in verse 13, but now. So we're saying, having no hope without God in the world, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Through Christ, we can know peace with God. We are saved by grace alone. This is good news, amen? And we may not like, uh, I don't know where you're at here, you may not like the blood language of the Bible. I get that it's a little bit funky sometimes. But remembering Christ's blood shed for us reminds us of the weight of our sin and the weight of Christ's sacrifice. That is good news. And so it's good news when we read verses like that. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Something radical happened when Jesus paid for our sins. The curtain was torn. This is good news. And I love this. John Phillips, a theologian, he has this kind of short story, this illustration that talks about this inclusion and how radical it is. It's a little bit disconnected from our life. We think uh, there's a level of entitlement. My whole life, all I've ever known is that the gospel is for me. But it wasn't always this way. And so this illustration from John Phillips, I'm going to read it. I have it slightly paraphrased for length. But I find it such an encouragement to think about this contrast of the privilege we have to have this open door of the gospel. So John Phillips writes this, Imagine a Moabite of old gazing down upon the tents and the tabernacle of Israel from some lofty mountain height. 
Attracted by what he sees, he descends to the plain and makes his way toward the sacred enclosure surrounding the tabernacle. It is a high wall of dazzling linen which reaches over his head. He walks around it until he comes to the gate where he sees a man. May I go in there, he asks, pointing to the gate where the bustle of activity in the tabernacle's outer court can be seen. Who are you? The man uh, demands suspiciously. Any Israelite would know that he could go in there. Well, I'm a man from Moab, the stranger replies. Well, says the man at the gate, I'm very sorry, but you cannot go in there. It is not for you. The law of Moses has barred the Moabite from any part of the worship of Israel until his 10th generation. The Moabite looks sad. What would I have to do to go in there? He insists. Well, you would have to be born again, replies the gatekeeper. You would have to be born an Israelite. You would need to be born of the tribe of Judah, perhaps, or the tribe of Benjamin or Dan. The Moabite says, I wish I had been born an Israelite of one of the tribes of Israel. And as he looks more closely, he sees one of the priests, having offered a sacrifice at the altar, cleanse himself and go into the tabernacle's interior. What's in there? asks the Moabite. Inside the main building, I mean. Oh, says the gatekeeper, that's the tabernacle itself. Inside there is a room containing a lampstand, a table, and an altar of gold. The man you saw is a priest. He will trim the lamp, eat the bread upon the table, and burn incense to the living God upon the golden altar. Ah, says the man of Moab. I wish I were an Israelite, and I wish I could do that. I would love to worship God in that holy place and help to trim the lamp to offer him some incense and to eat at the table. Oh, no, says the man at the gate. Even I could not do that. To worship in the holy place, one must not only be born an Israelite, he must be born of the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron. The man from Moab sighs again. I wish, he says, I wish I had been born of Israel, of the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron. Gazing wistfully at the closed tabernacle door, he says, what else is in there? Well, there's a veil, replies his informant. It's a beautiful veil, I'm told, which divides the tabernacle in two. Beyond the veil is what we call the most holy place, the holy of holies. The Moabite is more interested than ever. What is the holy of holies, he asks. Well, there's a sacred chest in there called the Ark of the Covenant, answers the gatekeeper. It contains holy memorials of our past. Its top is made of gold, and we call that the mercy seat because God sits there between the gold and cherubim. You see that pillar of cloud hovering over the tabernacle? That's the glory cloud. It comes to rest on the mercy seat. Again, a look of longing shadows the face of the man from Moab. Oh, if only I were born a priest, I should love to go into the Holy of Holies and there gaze upon God and worship him there in the beauty of his holiness. Oh no, says the man at the gate. You couldn't even do that if you were a priest. To enter the most holy place, you would have to be the high priest of Israel. Only he can go in there. Nobody else. Only him. The Moabite's heart yearns once more. Oh, he cries, if only I had born, been born an Israelite of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron, if only I had been born a high priest, I would go in there into the Holy of Holies. I would go in there every day. I would go in there three times a day. I would worship continually in the Holy of Holies. The gatekeeper looks at him again and once more shakes his head. Oh, no, you couldn't do that. Even the high priest of Israel can go in there only once a year and only after the most elaborate of preparations, and even then, only for a little while. Sadly, the Moabite turns away. He has no hope 
in all the world of ever entering there. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This word of welcome is extended to Jew and Gentile. We're reminded of passages like Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of of Jesus. This is revolutionary good news. We have access to the Father by the Spirit, but at what cost? By the blood of Jesus, who has made a way for us to know peace with God. So what was impossible for the Moabite, what was impossible for us apart from Christ is possible because Jesus bore the weight of sin for Jew and Gentile and for you and me if we would trust in him for salvation. This is good news. Charles Spurgeon said, you stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. Do you know this peace? you can by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus you can know this peace with God again this peace is more than just absence uh, of conflict it's not just a father that's you know dismissing you but approving of you sort of this is welcoming arms of a father who loves you dearly and accepts you not because of your righteousness but because of Christ's righteousness on your behalf this is the hope that we have this is true peace true accept acceptance not with an asterisk there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus God knows that you could never do it on your own but he welcomes you as his child I would encourage you, if you do not know this peace, if you don't know this hope, come talk to us. Consider this peace that we can know with God. And Christian, remember where you came from. Remember our desperate state apart from Christ. Confess your sin. Come to God empty-handed. Your broken life must be remembered, but it does not define you. The impossibility of being born again for that Moabite is possible for you. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This vertical peace with God is not the end of the story. but It is good news. This peace that God creates between us and him is something humanly impossible. 
And so is the implications of that peace. True peace with one another. And that's our second point this morning. Peace with one another. Peace with God. Peace with one another. Again, verses 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Peace with one another is possible and necessary. The dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. And what is this dividing wall? These are the laws that exclude the Gentiles from these covenant promises, but it says that they are abolished. The original audience might have had a picture in their mind from the word that Paul uses here about a dividing wall. may have been thinking of the temple courts and how there was a four and a half foot high wall that went around uh, for the court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles couldn't go past. If they did, there were signs posted everywhere in multiple languages so that they couldn't miss it, that if you went past that point, you were to blame for your death. And we see the severity of this. People wanted to kill Paul, you might remember, in the book of Acts because uh, it was rumored that he had brought Gentiles in past that point. So this is serious business. But the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. These legal, religious, social, racial walls are obliterated because of the gospel. There are no tiers of Christianity. You are a disciple of Christ or you are not a disciple of Christ. There's no elite Christians. There's no subpar Christians. We are all sinners in need of a savior. In our sinful nature, though, it slips. We build these walls where... They don't even exist. They've been obliterated, but we build them back up. And name it whatever it looks like for you or whatever you see in our culture. Are these status walls? Are these racial walls? We have a bad history of this. But when we look at God's word, this is an impossibility. To build these walls, it undermines the gospel. Paul gives us an example of deep-seated racial division. And yet, look at us. We build walls over petty things. We fight and divide over silly things. And so what Paul is saying here, this is crazy. He's saying, poof, gone. Centuries of hatred and disdain, gone. Generations of fighting, resentment, they're reconciled because of the gospel. And yet we today have the audacity to hate one another, hate one another over dumb things like masks and vaccines. Pick whatever you want. I know that's the hot topic right now. But what are we doing? This is so counter to what Paul is writing here, so counter to the gospel truths that we know. The miracle of peace that God made through the cross must trump these differences. And so don't build walls that have come down. Don't perform CPR on the hostility that has been killed through the cross. Now, what is this not? This is not unity that just ignores conflict, right? So we can have differences of of opinions on things. 
And that's good, right? That happens. So even the example, masks and vaccines. We can, we can disagree on these things, and that's okay. But too often we die on the wrong hills, or we die on the right hills wrongly. And so this is not unity that ignores conflict. This is unity amidst conflict. This is also not uniformity. Unity does not deny differences. The Jews are still Jewish. The Gentiles are still Gentiles. But their identities in Christ, their identities as brothers and sisters matter far more. And so I mentioned this in our Sunday evening prayer service last week. One way we can grow in this is to pray for one another. It is hard to be angry at someone that you're praying for. And it is hard, uh, maybe impossible, to hate someone that you're praying for. Pray for one another. Because this peace isn't possible because we get our act together. This peace isn't possible because we try hard enough or we figure it out. Reconciliation is possible because we are reconciled. That brother or sister that keeps failing you is a forgiven sinner. They've been shown radical mercy by Christ, and so have we. And so we can give grace because we've been shown grace time and time again. And I know this doesn't come easy. We had a little incident yesterday where a car door got opened and hit a car. It was my own car. Both cars got hit. It was in the driveway. There was not a lot of grace coming out of my heart in that moment. So I know this doesn't come easy. It's okay to be angry about things. It's okay to be upset about things. But the fact that we have been reconciled with Christ should change the way that we treat other people. So pray. Pray for God's help in this. If there is reconciliation that you need to make with another Christian, do it. This takes humility. This takes grace. But follow our Savior's example. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to give grace and offer peace while we were still sinners. And this unity and peace, it should be an encouragement to us within the church, but it should be evident to a watching world. Jesus said that they will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. It's interesting. He doesn't even say they'll know we are Christians by our love for the world. We are to love the world. We're to love our neighbors, our enemies, our friends, our family, everybody. But he says they'll know that we are his disciples. They will, he will know that the world will know that we follow Christ because our love for one another And Jesus' command in John 13 is to love one another as Christ has loved us. Unconditional love is how we see peace that trumps race, social status, economics, generations. This is the hope we have. We can have peace with God and we can have peace with one another because of the cross. And Paul goes on and he concludes this section describing our new corporate identity and how we can know this peace. And that's our third point this morning, how we can know this peace. We have peace with God, peace with one another, and how we can know this peace. Let me, verse 19. 
So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul gives us three descriptions or three metaphors for our corporate identity. He says we are citizens of God's kingdom. We are members of God's family. And we are stones in God's temple. Citizens, members, stones. Let's look briefly at each one. Citizens of God's kingdom. We are no longer strangers, aliens. We're not even refugees. We are citizens. We get to enjoy the rights and privileges of citizenship. And citizenship, it matters now, but it mattered a lot then. Paul knew this. He was a citizen of Rome. And he even appealed to that when he needed to. But his ultimate citizenship, we see this through his letters to the churches, is in heaven. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Jew, Gentile, male, female. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You hold citizenship in a kingdom with no end. So we are citizens of God's kingdom. We are members of God's household. More than even citizens, we are family. So if you were traveling in another country and you bump into another Canadian, let's say, you would be like, this is, that's cool. Hi, Canadian. But imagine you were in another country and you didn't know it and you bumped into your brother or your sister. It is one thing to be a citizen. It is another thing to be a family. You might even be able to say, okay, maybe God made an exception. He let the Gentiles in as citizens. But look at this. Family, adopted children, brothers and sisters. Our family identity changes the way that we relate to one another. Our allegiance, our care, and our love should reflect this identity. Russell Moore writes a lot about adoption, uh, both the doctrine of adoption and adoption uh, as in adopting children. And he says, adoption is the means that we're brought into a family, but it doesn't define our identity moving forward. I'll say that again. Adoption is the means that we are brought into the family, but it doesn't define our identity moving forward. So when he went to Russia and he adopted two boys that are about the same age, and he came back to America, people would say, are they brothers? He'd say, they are now. They're both my sons. That's adoption. Adoption makes a real family. And so church is not a building that we attend, but a very real family that we get to join and contribute to. Tony Morita, author and pastor, also has five kids through adoption. He says this, Be careful not to treat the church like a hotel, visiting a place occasionally and giving a tip if you are served well. Rather, see the church as a part of your Christian identity and understand that we all have a role to play in God's household. So we are citizens of God's kingdom, we are members of God's household, and we are stones in God's temple. Now, this is a more foreign metaphor to us, but his audience would know this, that the temple was the central point of God's presence with his people for centuries. 
And so now loosed from geography, God's people indwelt by the Spirit are his temple. Jew and Gentile believers represent God to the world as embassies of God's kingdom to the world through the church. The Gentiles were not even allowed to enter the temple before, but now they are the temple. We see that the temple is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There's a lot we could say here, uh, but briefly, we just need to think about what does this mean for us? Well, just like the early church, we see in Acts 2 that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to God's word, God's revealed will in scriptures. And so we must be a word-driven church. God's revealed will is our foundation. And so more than a slogan or a catchphrase, we need to be word-driven. More than a slogan or a catchphrase, too, we need to be Christ-centered. We see he says Christ is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is the most important part of the foundation. It ensured that things were square and that things were stable. Everything was built on it and around it. And so a unified body, citizens, a family, a temple, must be word-driven and Christ-centered. And those need to be more than, you know, just a, a line on our website or something fun on a banner. Those need to be real identities for us to be a healthy church, a unified church, a church that knows peace with God and peace with one another. So we have a question as we think about how do we apply this to our lives? How do we live this out? How do we live out these identities of being citizens, members of the household, stones in a temple? How do we live this out? How do we live out peace with one another? You probably guessed it. We live it out with one another. We live it out with one another. Western individualism, it says that we should live dismembered from others, that we should live dismembered from the local church. But this simply isn't a picture that we see in Scripture. Being a member of a local church isn't an add-on or an optional thing when we look at the New Testament. In the church, we have privileges, community, oversight, and the accountability that we need. And this is, brings challenges. Maybe that's what you think of when you think of being a member of a local church, you'd say, that sounds hard, that sounds dangerous, that sounds like it's going to be an exercise for me. Well, the challenges that come with doing life together, let us exercise these muscles of peace. And they keep those muscles from becoming atrophied. The way we live out our identities in the universal church become applicable and visible in the local church. This is how we affirm and live out our identities as citizens and how we live as a real family. A baseball player is still a baseball player without playing baseball with other people. But I think we can understand how to really be a baseball player is more than identifying yourself as one and throwing a ball with yourself. So this is a challenge, but it's not a burden. It is a gift. It allows us to not have to jump through hoops as we read scripture. How do we apply these commands to love one another, encourage one another, to gather together, to admonish one another, to care for one another, to contribute to one another? This puts meat on the bones. It gives you people that you can look in the eye and you can say, brother or sister, 
I promise to live out this grace and peace with you that we know in Christ. I've got your back. Do you have mine? And so anyone who has gone public with their faith by being baptized, who is uh, in that they've put on the team jersey of Christianity, they've identified themselves with Jesus and his people. And so those who have been baptized and those that can carry out the responsibilities of membership get to enjoy the privileges and responsibilities of membership. I mentioned we have a class coming up. This is not a class like you would go to, you know, those things you get scammed into at resorts for like a timeshare to be uh, convinced of what membership in this organization would look like. This is not what it's about. It is not like a country club. It is not like a Costco membership. It is publicly identifying with a group of people. It's saying, I am no longer a stranger or an alien. I am a citizen. I am a brother or a sister. If you are not a member of this or another gospel preaching church, we would love to talk with you further about what that means. Again, to put meat on the bones of living out these commands that we see in Scripture. would love to talk with you more about that. We see that Jesus institutes the church in passages like Matthew 16, Matthew 18, and commissions the church in Matthew 28. We see that his followers are obedient. Within days of his ascension, they begin planting churches. They're devoted to God's word. They're proclaiming the gospel. They're baptizing those that have been saved, and they're adding them to the church. That is the pattern we see in the New Testament. When Paul describes the church in Acts chapter 20, he says that it is something obtained by Jesus' blood. The church matters to Jesus, and the church should matter to us. And it's hard, but it's a joy to live out our citizenship, our membership in God's household, and to be building blocks in God's temple. And so peace should characterize our church. This vertical and horizontal peace is really a great definition of what the church is and what the church can be. That's why Klein Snodgrass, Snodgrass is making a comeback here. Klein Snodgrass says, this is perhaps the most significant passage about the doctrine of the church in the whole New Testament. That's a bold claim. This is perhaps the most significant passage about the doctrine of the church in the whole New Testament. Because what he's talking about here is peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. In this whole letter, we see the good news that God has made peace, made a way for us to have peace with him. And he gives us example after example of how to live it out as Christians. And so Swiss theologian Marcus Barth says this. He describes this section as the key and high point of the whole epistle, of the whole letter. These are big claims from smart people. This peace with God and peace with one another matter. And passages like this should ignite our heart for God and should ignite our love for one another, the church. We are the blood-bought bride of Christ. We are citizens of God's kingdom. We are members of God's family, and we are stones in his temple. This is not racial. This is not geographical. This is good news for all people. This is good news for you this morning. This is good news for me this morning. That through the blood of Christ, we can know real peace. Peace with God and peace with one another. Let's pray. God, we are amazed at the good news 
the fact that you would send your only son to die for us, to make peace with us when we didn't deserve it. We thank you for this gift of grace. And God, we thank you for the way that that gift of grace, for this peace we can have with you, changes everything about the way we live. God, help us to live this out as a witness to one another in obedience to you and as a witness to the watching world that we truly do love one another, that we can have peace with one another, that you have reconciled us all to you in one body through the cross and that's killed the hostility. Father, help us to grasp and know these identities that we have as citizens in your kingdom, as members of your family, and as your very temple. As we come to share in the Lord's Supper, would you bless this time as well? Would we remember well this peace that we can know through the blood of Christ? We pray these things in his name, the name of Jesus. Amen.